The human immune system can be broken down into three lines of defense. The first line of defense are a bunch of barriers that can help block the invasion or the portal of entry that the microbe uses to access the host. The first defense does not actually have the ability to recognize specific microorganisms, and so it's a very generalized line of defense. The second line of defense is also nonspecific, and it is the internalized system of protective cells. And the second line of defense, you are going to find inflammation as well as phagocytosis. Now, the third line of defense is acquired on an individual basis. It can be a very specific response to a specific pathogen. It's very important that all three of these different line of defenses work together to provide complete protection against an infection. The first and second line of defense are known as the innate immune defense. The innate immune defense can be characterized as a multifaceted system of defenses that target pathogens in a very nonspecific fashion. The first line of defense are usually your physical defenses, so physical barriers, mechanical defenses, and the community of microorganisms known as the microbiome that live in or on you. The second line of defense are your chemical defenses, enzymes, chemicals that are found in the human host, antimicrobial proteins or peptides, plasma protein mediators, cytokines, as well as inflammation eliciting mediators. We are going to focus on just a few of these chemical defenses in today's lecture. The second line also includes cellular defenses, which which include granulocytes as well as agranulocytes, which are different classes of white blood cells. The innate immune system is that first line and second line of defenses that help prevent infections from really getting a foothold in the human body. It's nonspecific because again, it does not target any specific microorganism. It's more of a generalized approach to kind of get them out of the system. It's considered to be innate because it's already made out of built-in mechanisms that the human body contains. It contains a chemical defense, physical defense, as well as a cellular defense. Despite the fact that we are constantly being exposed to microorganisms since they are ubiquitous, we're not always suffering from disease, the innate immune system really does a great job of protecting us from any kind of infection. A type of physical defense that can be found are your cellular junctions, which prevent microorganisms from reaching tissues susceptible to infection. There are several classes, but there are three that we're focusing on here. One of them is known as a tight junction, which can be found holding together blood vessels. These usually prevent fluid leakage between cells and they help form tissue layers. We also have desmosomes which are cell junctions that really do a great job of anchoring cells together to produce tight sheets and we have gap junctions which help allow for channels to run across two different cells to allow for the transport of molecules. All three of these do a really good job of trying to prevent microbes from getting into other cells to be spread out throughout the tissue. Another physical defense is your skin and it's the most important layer. You have several layers of your skin. The outermost layer is the epidermis. This layer contains keratin, which is a tough and resistant protein, very hard to break down from bacterial enzymes. Your epidermis tends to be dry, salty, acidic to help minimize bacterial growth. And you also shed skin cells daily, and so you're shedding bacteria as well as they fall off with your skin. Infection of the skin usually happens when this barrier is broken. The dermis contains hair follicles, as well as sweat glands, nerves, and blood vessels. And then of course, you're probably familiar with the hypodermis, which is that fatty layer. It's got blood and also has lymph vessels. Another physical defense are your mucous membranes. Mucous membranes secrete mucus. It's where they get their name from. And this covers and protects a lot of the fragile cell layers beneath it to help trap 
debris, particulate matter, as well as microorganisms. And a lot of mucus secretions do contain peptides or proteins that have antimicrobial properties. Mucus that lines the respiratory tract is trapped in a layer known as the mucociliary blanket, and epithelial cells lining the respiratory tract are ciliated, and they use the cilia to help propel mucus out and away from the lungs. Mucus is often removed mechanically from the body. It's either swallowed or coughed up or sneezed out, and the system is known as the mucociliary escalator. A mechanical defense would be kind of the shedding of the skin cells as previously discussed. Mucus expulsion, the excretion of feces, flushing of urine helps wash out transient flora, and then of course your tears. Your eyelashes and eyelids also prevent dust and airborne microorganisms from reaching the surface of the eye, and then of course it's flushed out with blinking. All of these remove pathogens from potential sites of infections. Your microbiome is the resident bacteria that's found in your skin, your upper respiratory system, your GI, your genitourinary tract, and they all compete with other microorganisms for binding sites and nutrients, so the competition helps beat out the pathogens. In regards to chemical defenses, these usually include your body fluids, like surfactant that can be found in the lungs to help kill microbes. The sebum from sebaceous glands provides an oil barrier that protects the hair follicle pores from microorganisms, and then your gastric fluid is acidic and it inhibits or kills bacterial species. We have antimicrobial peptides. These include, but are not limited to, histatin, bacteriosin, and defensin, which are all proteins that attack membranes as well as other cell functioning. We do have a protein system known as the complement system, which is a series of proteins found in the blood that can bind to invading microorganisms. They can coat the microbes to stop them from sticking to host tissues and attaching. They can puncture holes into the microorganism cell membrane to cause them to burst. They can help promote the inflammatory process, and they can also help attract other immune cells to the site of infection so that they can also facilitate in the battle against the microorganism. Cytokines act as communication signals between cells. These are protein molecules. There are three main types. We have autocrine, which is when you have one cell secrete a chemical protein signal and then actually receive that same signal with surface protein receptors. This would be analogous to like sending yourself a reminder to do something later. So they're sending out the signal to remind the cell to do some kind of job. A paracrine cytokine is a cytokine that's secreted out to a neighboring cell, one that's nearby and can respond to the message. And an endocrine cytokine is the one that travels throughout the circulatory system to travel to a distant cell to relay some kind of protein message. Another chemical defense are interferons, which are actually chemicals that a cell can produce and release during an intracellular infection. They're very effective against viral infections, but they do have very limited responses against bacterial infections. These interferons send messages to neighboring cells to destroy RNA and reduce protein synthesis to prevent a virus from attaching to that cell to acquire it as a host. Sometimes it'll send a message to cause a cell to undergo apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, to prevent the cell from being used as a host for the virus. And then of course it can also send that message to a nearby immune cell like a white blood cell and activate it so that it can help facilitate in the degradation process of the organism. White blood cells are a type of cellular defense. There are actually several classes of white blood cells. They can help phagocytize or eat the bacteria. 
They can fight parasitic infections, they can cause programmed cell death, which is apoptosis, and they can release antibodies and target antigen. Both of these are terms that we will cover very soon. Blood cells are derived from stem cells in the bone marrow, and they mature in specialized cells, which have different functions, and this process of blood cell maturation is known as hematopoiesis. Elements of blood includes plasma, platelets, red blood cells, and white blood cells. Blood is made of plasma, which is about 92% water. It's made out of proteins, clotting factors, hormones, nutrients, ions, dissolved gases, and waste products. So let's go ahead and dive into the different types of white blood cells. There are various types, granulocyte white blood cells. They're very distinguishable because they have have very unique structures of nuclei. They are also going to be filled with granules that kind of give them a spotty appearance when stained. And these include the neutrophils, the eosinophils, and the basophils. Neutrophils are often involved in the elimination of bacteria and can kill infectious bacteria. When neutrophils are working to rid of a bacterial infection, they often accumulate and can be visibly seen as the formation of pus. The presence of pus is a sign that the immune response is being activated against the infection. Eosinophils are granulocytes that work really well against protozoans as well as helminths. They also play a role in allergic reactions. They tend to bind to sugars on parasites and disrupt cell membranes and membrane permeability. Basophils are also used in allergic reactions, but they do play a larger role in the inflammatory process. They can release histamine when stimulated. Mast cells are very similar to basophils in that they do play a role in the allergic response. These usually reside near the skin as well as mucous membranes. In this image here, we have a mast cell and a blood smear. And on the second image, you can see that mast cells can migrate away from the circulatory vessel system and actually enter into various tissues like what we can see stained blue on the right there. And the mast cells are shown with the arrows. The other type of white blood cell type are agranulocytes. And these lack visible granules when stained. Agranulocytes are often broken up into two different subcategories known as lymphocytes or monocytes. Lymphocytes can become specialized into natural killer cells that do play a role in the innate immune defense. Lymphocytes can also include B cells and T cells, which will be covered in the third line of defense. In regards to monocytes, these often have the ability to differentiate or specialize into a type of cell known as a macrophage and a dendritic cell. Macrophages and dendritic cells can be found in body tissues, Several classes of white blood cells have the ability to recognize structures on the outside of pathogenic microbes. These structures are known as pathogen-associated molecular patterns, also known as PAMPs. A couple of examples of PAMPs include peptidoglycan, flagellin, which is a protein found in bacterial flagella, lipopeptides, and nucleic acids. In this diagram here, you can see the white blood cell has in its plasma membrane these green Y-shaped receptors that have the ability to bind to the respective molecules that are shown on the diagram. These include the lipopeptides as well as the peptidoglycan. Once it binds to this structure, it produces a vesicle through the process of endocytosis. It brings that structure that will be associated with that microbe and help break it down. And so that is shown on the next slide here where we have pathogen degradation. Bacteria are brought into white blood cells via endocytosis 
lysis in which they produce a special vesicle known as a phagosome. White blood cells have lysosomes, which are these small membrane-bound structures that contain hydrolytic digestive enzymes that will then fuse with the phagosome to produce something known as the phagolysosome. What will then happen is that those digestive enzymes inside the lysosome will become released and surround the bacteria to break it down. And once it's broken down, the waste is then excreted out of the cell. Inflammation is defined as a complex biochemical response that aims to kind of restore homeostasis inside of an organism after some type of traumatic event. And it's a signal cascade process that involves a whole plethora of molecules and cells to kind of get the job done. Usually inflammation is associated with a negative consequence such as injury or disease, but it is a very important process to kind of allow for the immune system to eliminate pathogens. It is important to note that excessive inflammation can result in tissue damage or even become deadly. However, there are three main functions of the inflammatory process. They are number one, to attract immune components to the site of injury, so white blood cells. Number two, it is to clear harmful substances and really promote healing and tissue repair at the site of infection. And three, it aims to inhibit or destroy any kind of invading pathogenic organism. In this diagram here on the left side, you can see that there are mast cells that have traveled to the site of injury just below the outer layer of the skin. And what you can see is that these mast cells have detected this injury site and the green rod-shaped cells indicate the pathogens that have entered in through this breach of the skin. The mast cells are going to initiate the inflammatory response by releasing a compound known as histamine. What histamine does is it increases blood flow to the wound site and allows for vascular permeability to allow for fluids, white blood cells, or other immune cells to go to that site of injury. It allows for the site to start to swell as well as redden due to the increased blood flow to the injured site and it might also start to feel a little warm. This stage of inflammation is often associated with pain mainly because of the fact that there are nerve pain receptors in that area of the skin tissue that are going to be affected due to this increased amount of fluid as well as white blood cells to the site. And the number of white blood cells to the site does result in the formation of pus, which arises due to the accumulation of neutrophils, dead cells, tissue fluids, and after a few days, the white blood cells known as macrophages will come in and help clear out the pus to allow for the tissue at the site of injury to begin to repair. When an acute inflammation is unable to clear a pathogenic organism, sometimes you can have chronic inflammation occur. This could allow for pathogens to enter into deeper tissues to stimulate further inflammatory events, and in some cases, it can lead to the formation of granulomas, which are pockets of infected tissue that have become walled off and they are surrounded by white blood cells in an attempt to battle this pathogenic organism as well as any cellular debris that might be inside of the granuloma. One example of a disease that can cause chronic inflammation is tuberculosis, which results in the formation of granulomas like the one pictured here inside of lung tissues. Chronic inflammation isn't only associated with bacteria, it can arise due to viral infections, which is what tends to happen when you see excessive scarring in the liver caused by hepatitis C. A fever is defined as an inflammatory response that extends way beyond the site of infection and affects the entire body, resulting in an overall body increase of temperature. The human body temperature is about 37 degrees Celsius, which is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and a fever is often a sign of illness or inflammation. Fevers can be caused by molecules known as pyrogens. These can be made by your body or by microorganisms. When they are produced by you, they are considered to be endogenous, meaning that they come 
come from within the body. When they are produced by microorganisms, they're considered to be exogenous since they come from outside of the body. There are a couple of benefits of fever. One of them is the fact that when you have an elevated body temperature, it can inhibit the growth of temperature-sensitive microorganisms. A fever also contains the levels of iron in the body, and this prevents iron ions from being available for microorganisms to use for metabolism, so it does affect microbial growth. Temperature can also boost the metabolic processes of your own cells and help aid in the healing process, as well as facilitating the stimulation of immune cells like your white blood cells. And lastly, an increased temperature can help speed up the process of phagocytosis, as well as the formation of blood cells, which is hematopoiesis. There are some downsides to fever. Number one is that it's very hard for the body to distinguish what type of hydrogens are produced, either from you or from some microorganism, and the fever can rise too high. When you have a fever that's very elevated, greater than 41.7 degrees Celsius, which is 107 degrees Fahrenheit, you can have serious consequences such as seizures, permanent damage of tissue, or even death. Permanent tissue damage is often seen in prolonged fevers as well.